Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 19 through 22. Let me get there myself. <clears throat> the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. Did you catch that from the call? Call to worship. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. How the law came, it came in glory. But how salvation comes, it comes in greater glory. Right? And this is some of the things that Paul has actually been discussing through Galatians. How the law and God's saving promises function together. So Galatians chapter 3 verse 19, he's beginning once again just kind of another layer of argument describing just how the law, that which points out our guilt, our fault, uh, how it functions with the promises of God, that which actually redeems us from all our fault, if that makes sense. So Galatians chapter 3 verse 19, it's that simple question. If God has determined to save us by his promises, right? Then why do we have a law? Why, why do we need a law to tell us that we are at fault if God is determined to save us anyhow? What, what, what's the purpose of him sticking law in our face if he intends to save us anyhow? Well, Paul says... The law was added, verse 19, because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, and this is where things just get absolutely confusing. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Right? Just as we read from Hebrews 12, Remember the giving of the law? It came through uh, meteor, uh, Moses, but it also angels, right? All this crazy stuff happening at Mount Sinai, right? The law came through an intermediary, which implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Does the law get in the way of what God's actually attempting to do in salvation history? He says, certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, oh, imprisoned. It imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given. It's a gift so that the promise of salvation might freely be given to those who believe. All right, let's pray. Um, and I know maybe you're like, dude, I just got here and I'm barely waking up and I need another cup of coffee. But uh, let's pray that God wakes our hearts up and gives us ears to hear. All right. Just know we can go through this moment right now talking through God's word and and actually, you can hear everything that I'm not saying. You, you can catch all these things that God doesn't intend for you to catch this morning. I, I've sat underneath preaching and actually walked away saying that was borderline heresy. I go back to reading it or watching it, whatever it ends up being, and it's a blessing. What was the difference? It was the ears of my heart. I need the Holy Spirit to hear what God has for me this morning. Don't, don't just come with your, your intellect at the table, 
I'm going to figure this out, right? You, you surrender all that stuff and say, Holy Spirit, give me the ears to hear what I need to hear this morning. We come in need. I hope, I hope you realize that. I hope you're coming here in need this morning. So, Lord, we pray by the gift of your Holy Spirit, the promised one given of the Father. Yes, Lord, we pray that you would come and now quicken our hearts to hear your word that it would be what our soul needs this morning. Maybe, maybe not what is, maybe not what is uh, going to feel so great, <laughs> but what is inevitably what we need. So Lord, I just pray, I just pray that you'd come now, quicken our ears to receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, so, if you have been tracking with us over the last so many weeks here in the book of Galatians, more or less what we have come to discover <clears throat> is that the book of Galatians is for kind of dopey, hard-hearted Christians like you and me. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. It's for us. And if you say, I'm not a dopey, hard-hearted, well, there you go. You're proving that you are. Anytime you try to justify yourself, any try, time you try to kind of climb out of that sinkhole of, you know, self-condemnation, right? You're just proving the fact that you're, you're off point already. We are the dopey, hard-hearted Christians. And, and that is to say that there is, as we've talked about over the weeks, there is this sickness at work within our souls, this remaining sin or this sin principle, however you want to fashion it theologically. But we have a battle, a sanctifying battle that we're all kind of going through. And the battle at hand involves this. It involves the tendency to make Jesus a mere accessory to your life. That he is just a garnish on the plate of your desired life. So the church then, more broadly, as, as, as we would struggle with this small Christ Christianity, the church then is, is given to this spiritual ailment of manufacturing a Jesus, a Lord and Savior as we call him, who is made more in our image than anything else. He is one who can become in our lives, although we confess him as Lord and Savior, he can become inconsequential. He can't break my heart over sin. He can't demand my full-on surrender. He can't, he can't put a calling on my life. He can't lay upon me a holy burden for the lost. Or at least not, not a burden that can last very long before I'm just distracted with my own busyness, my own things to do. But it's in that battle, folks, that we got to realize that we're exchanging what is the line of Judah for that house cat what is, uh, if you will, a nuclear reactor for just a couple AA batteries. We're exchanging this incalculable treasure for just a few pennies. And should the church then not give themselves to this big Jesus, here's what happens. We, 
we begin to exchange the power and authority of Christ. We begin to exchange, as Paul has already referenced, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, the love of the Father. We exchange all of that for nothing but religious apathy and human ingenuity. And so the church becomes either a legalistic morgue rather than a heavenly hospital, or it becomes a marketing business attempting to attract people with all kinds of incentives and amenities. You know, here's the new programs and, that we're running. Here's the new things that we're doing. We become this marketing business rather than a true priesthood who actually has a hold on the presence of God. So the church, with a small Jesus ultimately begins to look like Paul will say will be the end time reality of the church. Men will be lovers of pleasure. They will be lovers of comfort and ease rather than lovers of God. They will have an appearance of godliness confessing him, but they will deny his power. Now, I don't know about you, um, but that's where I sometimes live my life. Let me just minimize Jesus so I can do my own life the way I feel like I need to do it. I, I'm there. I'm in the battle. I'm the dopey, hard-hearted Christians that Galatians is, is, is for. But remember what Paul then has done for us specifically last week in verses 15 through 18. It was a stunning encouragement for all the ways that I am off Jesus is not. Even if I do minimize him at times, it doesn't actually minimize Jesus. Jesus still stands as my big Jesus. Although I may add things to him, whittle him down for my own kind of desired life, Jesus remains who he is, and he remains true to me as he is. He is the one, remember, who makes the covenant, the promises, and the inheritance actually a reality for us. Salvation is untouched by my failings because it stands on the shoulders of the perfect one, Jesus Christ. He's won it for me. I can never lose my salvation. I can't lose it. Why? Because I didn't play a part in it. He took it upon himself so that even as the dopey, hard-hearted Christian that I can be, my salvation stands secure. That's what Paul is saying. Now, that doesn't give us any excuses to be like, well, geez, well, then what's the point of like even caring about my holiness? And that's to the point, really, of what Paul will get at now. To our text this morning, Paul begins to ask this question, if salvation is altogether settled in Christ, if God has placed the price of salvation, so to speak, on his own shoulders, he's won the day when it comes to our salvation, then what's the point of the Old Testament law? What's the point of God actually putting law before us? Verse 19, as Paul says it, why then the Law. How does this moral standard fit into God's saving purposes? What's the point of it all? In verses 19 and 20, and I want to kind of work fairly quickly through some of these things, the law establishes the extent of our guilt. 
right? The law establishes the extent of our guilt. Just notice verse 19. The Old Testament was added, right? It, it, it's added. The law wasn't the saving promise. No, rather, 430 years later, after the promises was gave, given to Abraham and to the offspring Christ, it was given, then, then 430 years, the law comes to Moses. The law becomes something of a side note to God's saving promises. And why? Why, why was this law added? And we could ask this, why are any laws added? Why are any laws necessary? Why does a nation have laws? Now, why do companies and schools, even family units, establish laws? Why have the kids gone upstairs, and probably before they even jump into what they're going to do this morning, they're rehearsing laws? <laughs> you must raise your hand, right? No talking. There's laws put into place because of sin. Law establishes a standard by which we might see our sin. Uh, it, the law can't determine a relationship. It can't make you a citizen of that nation. It can't make you a son and daughter of that family, right? It can't put you into relationship, but it can certainly shine the spotlight on the condition of that relationship. The law was added because of sin. Um, in fact, Paul, in other passages of Scripture, he'll say it like this. He says, Romans 3.20, Through the law comes a knowledge of sin. In other words, without the law, I wouldn't actually know how messed up and bad I am. Or Romans chapter 4, verse 15, where there is no law, there is no transgression. There is no kind of legal counterpart to enforce things, to show the consequence of things. Or Romans chapter 7, verse 7, if it had not been for the law, I should have not known sin. He's saying the same things over and over again. The law is proving my guilt. It's proving my condition. It's proving my sin. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the power of sin is the law. The law gives weight to the reality of sin. Right? It establishes a, a legal condition for when we go astray. And therefore, we have to realize this. Paul is saying, I'd be so deluded in my self-justification that I would be callous, become callous to the reality of my relationship with the Lord. Catch it? If I didn't have the law. The law wakes us up to our stupid, dopey, hard-hearted self-justifications that we're all prone to. Oh, I'm not the problem, he's the problem. Even in the church, we do this. I'm not the problem, cross the aisle, they're the problem. If you're looking for a perfect community in a church, don't, don't even go there. We're imperfect people. We will point across the aisle, so to speak. We'll justify ourselves comparing ourselves with others. It's part of our sin nature, but the law interrupts all that stuff. It, 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 it silences any kind of self-justification that we bring to the table. Oh, no, 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 no. This, the law points the finger, boom, right back at you. It's kind of, you know, you point the finger one way, how many fingers you got pointing at yourself. The law does that for us. Turns the table, so to speak. 
So when you're looking to condemn someone else, you can't but find yourself under the law of condemned. So, notice though, it's a loving thing that God would establish the extent of my transgressions through the law. It's a loving thing. I find this with my kids. When I sit down and, you know, have to uh, discipline them, it comes with even more uh, emotion because of what we're going with, through with Jabari. Because he, he is not legally mine. And that undermines the discipline process. Because he, when I bring law to bear, he's not ultimately secure in my love. Because the judge can say, nope, he's going elsewhere. But how I treat him as my child, with all the love I have, and then when he's done wrong, I gotta sit him down and usually bring some consequence to bear, however that might be, right? And I want to get his eyes. Say, Jabari, look at me. Look at my eyes. I am doing this. I am showing your wrongdoing because I love you. If I didn't love you, I'd just let you be a little tyrant in this house. I'd let you just go do what you want to do. I'd let you just want to confuse right from wrong. Let you just take morality and make it whatever you feel like you want it to be. But no, I'm your dad and I got to bring some law to bear. But with that law comes love because I'm going to set you in the right direction. I have to show you right from wrong. What father shouldn't? I got to. And that's a loving thing that the creator God would do. Give us law that would show not our sense of standard of what we should be, but his creator. He made us. He gets to decide what we are to be. He gets to decide our morality. He gets to decide what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, how we're to relate with one another, how we're to live this life. He gets to decide it all. It's his love, and it's a loving reality. So, folks, we, we got to look at the law as this is the, the kindness of God shining through. The law is that which reveals my condition. It puts a spotlight onto the condition of my heart. I can't justify myself. I can't even compare myself with anyone else. It's the law that comes in to establish my transgression. So I'm, I got to keep moving. Oh. Folks, it's the kindness of God to confront us with his law so as to shake us from our own delusions of self-determined goodness. We're not good. But Paul then goes on, verse 19, he says, The law was added because of transgressions in, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. Who's the offspring again? You remember from verses prior? Who's the offspring? Well, close is part of it. Yep. But, it, but he mentions it earlier, verses earlier. Jesus. He is the offspring. He is the head, right? 
and, and so what he's saying is the law was added until Jesus would come. And there's a lot to say there that I just do not want to get sidetracked by. We'll make a few comments about it uh, later. So he goes on. And it was put in place, the law was put in place uh, through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. You say, what in the world? Like, I, you totally lost me now. I get that the law adds transgression. It condemns me. Okay, great, wonderful. But what in the world is all this other talk? It, to bring you into it, uh, many think that the false teachers in Galatia were making a big deal about how God gave the law. Right? Uh, you know, the big thunderings, the big lightnings, Mount Sinai, angelic visitations, and all that kind of stuff. You can go back to Deuteronomy 33 and see some of that. But Paul spins it on them, um, saying that the fact that angels and intermediaries were involved shows just how limited the law actually is. In other words, if an intermediary was used, then we are talking about a conditional contract between two parties. When you're, when you're putting a contract together, there's, somewhat, there's a go-between, right? Okay, there's conditions for you on this side, there's conditions for you on this side, and we're coming together to make a deal, so to speak. It's a conditional deal, because if you fail, well, then there's consequences to it. And if you fail, well, there's consequences. There's conditions that are brought to the table. And that's what he's saying. The law wasn't this grand thing. The law was this, this thing where intermediaries were used. It's a contract, not a covenant. It's a conditional reality, not an unconditional promise. And so verse 20, now an intermediary implies more than one, right? More than one party is involved in a contract, in a conditional contract. But God is what? One. Paul's going back to the argument that he made earlier, that God made the promise of salvation to God. He gave the promise, as he said earlier, uh, in the verses earlier, he said he gave the promise to Abraham and to his offspring, who is Christ. The Father gave his promise of salvation to Christ. In other words, the promise of salvation was not hung on you or me. It was not placed in redemptive history under conditions, under contractual conditions. No, it was placed on God himself, Father to the Son, we're in this to win a people for our namesake. We're in this to bring salvation to those who are broken. God is one. Which means, in other words, there's no contract, only a covenant. God himself has promised it to you. He's the only one at the table. And he's taken all the responsibility on himself. There's no conditions. It's only God who has promised it. And the idea that God is one is remarkable because the reality is saying that God is saying, if I fail to fulfill my promise of salvation, I fail to be one. I fail to be God. You catch it? I, I'm, I'm putting my own existence on the table, so to speak. If I fail to bring about this salvation for you, then, oh, I am not God. Then he's worthy to be whittled down. 
then it's right for you and me to have a small Christ Christianity. Might as well just jump into Islam and make Jesus uh, just a prophet. Or into the JWs and just make him another God. We can just alter him because he's not one. That's why we have to be very careful of those things that divert from Christianity. It poses a salvation that undermines the very one promised in God's word. So, what Paul is saying is that the law shows us then the extent of our sin. It adds the, con uh, uh, the transgression. It's not a, a contract, or it is a contract. It's not the promise that is unconditional. The law is this contract, right? That this condition you got to live up to, but the law's already stated. You're cursed. You can't. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Uh, no. So then, you're cursed. Folks, uh, maybe if we could say it this way. If, if you could lose your salvation, guess what? <laughs> you would. <laughs> you would lose it. If there was any kind of contractual agreement to our salvation in Christ, we'd lose our salvation in Christ. And so, yes, the law, if you will, the law is like an MRI. It can only go through every layer of your anatomy and show the cancer that's there. That's what the law does. It can't take the cancer out. It can't make you better. It only shows that you have failed to meet up to the conditions of the law. That's what the law does. Or we could say it this way. The law is that drug dog, man, it'll sniff you out. There's evidence all over you that you have failed. And that drug dog, it'll sniff it out. It'll bring that evidence to bear. It'll condemn you. It'll bring the legal bearing of all of heaven against you. And that's why God then <laughs> kindly butts us out of the process of salvation. It says you aren't playing a role in this one, child. You're not playing a role in the accomplishment of my salvation. This is entirely on my son. So the law, again, can establish your righteousness. It only came to add, it, add your transgressions. It's the MRI, it can't save you. It can only show your sickness, prove your death, so to speak, right? But then second, all right? The law establishes the extent of our guilt. Oh, this is, this is good. The law establishes the extent of God's mercy. Why do we need the law? Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Uh, that is, that is if, if the law condemns, isn't that contrary to a God is, who is interested in saving us? <laughs> you get what he's saying? It's like if the law is going to damn us, if the law is just going to sniff us out and prove our guilt, you know, it's going to show the cancer within us, 
Doesn't that get in the way of what God actually wants to do, save people? And Paul says, certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, verse 21, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. He's just saying, oh, sure, if that was God's intention, yeah, that, that's the way it would function. But it's not God's intention, verse 22. But Scripture imprisoned, oh, everything under sin. <laughs> Paul is referring to the Old Testament scripture as a whole. Not, and now he's, he's expanding it. It's not just the law. He's referring to the Old Testament as a whole. And he's saying that the Old Testament makes a clear judgment on everything and over everyone. Man is guilty. It imprisons everything. That, that drug dog of the law sniffs out everything so that everyone is condemned in prison. The law can't get you free. It can't make you better. It only actually makes you worse. It can't even pay your bail. It can't put you on parole. It can't even put you on work release. It can't give you life. It can only sentence you to life. The law damns then any kind of self-assumed merit. It kills every last ounce of self-determined goodness. The law, the law doesn't say that you're just kind of crippled in your sin. Right? It, it doesn't say that you're just kind of disabled in your sin. It declares that you are dead in your sin. And it keeps you there. <laughs> it holds you there. The law can't give you life. A bunch of you shall and you shall not can't give you life. It can only declare that apart from Jesus, you are on death row. You are imprisoned. The law can only say of us, dead man walking, dead man walking. It's all the law can do. It can only declare your death. It can only imprison you. But this is why the law is so good and so necessary. This is why the law doesn't stand at odds with God's saving promises, but actually serves it. Notice the language, verse 22. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that, there's the reason, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, that promise of salvation that comes by faith in Jesus Christ might be what? Given. Given. Oh, all right. That, that's where you're all supposed to be like, amen, amen, amen. Like, I'm, I'm going to get on my seat for that one. Listen, the law makes it right for God to punish you eternally. You don't like two minutes of discomfort. You, you don't like even waiting in line at Wawa. And God's putting a law before us saying, you have fallen so far short of my glory. It's an eternity that you are deserving of, of punishment. Stop. Oh, you, you've got to get out of your own self-justifications. I'm not that bad. no, 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 no. God has established a law over you that he will judge you by. 
when the day of judgment comes, and the day of judgment is probably something that the American church needs to uh, recapture. It'll place urgency on your soul. It's a grace of urgency. Because we are not what we should be, and God's law has determined it. We will not be judged by our own view of, of goodness, but on God's view of goodness. And so, for this to be true, that the law, yes, establishes my sin, and it establishes my guilt, and, and, and it imprisons everything, it shuts you away in the cell of damnation, it, it imprisons, it holds you, chains you in to the judgment of condemnation that is yours, but also that, also that, the promise of salvation might be freely given to those who believe. The law imprisoned you so that there would be no confusion to the fact that salvation is freely given, not earned. That the depth to which the law condemns you has been now perfectly satisfied in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus put your condemnation on himself. Jesus became, if we could say it this way, the dead man walking. And he did so as the perfect lamb of God. He did so as the one who fulfilled the law, who perfectly upheld it. In other words, he was the guiltless one. When the MRI of the law came to Jesus, it went through the full anatomy of who he is as the God-man, sliced him up and always investigated who he is and found him blameless. He is the only one whom the law could not imprison, in other words. You get it? We all are imprisoned under the law. Jesus shows up on the scene, and the law has no weight on him, has no impact upon him. In fact, Jesus will say, I fulfilled the law. <laughs> For everything that the law desired us to be, Jesus comes and fulfills had no condemning power on Christ. And yet it was this free man, this perfect man, this son of glory who set, stepped down into my cell and became for me that dead man walking. Do you see what the law does? It doesn't stand contrary to God's saving purposes but it does keep our hands off of any kind of contribution to it. It keeps us from minimizing God's mercy. It keeps us from whittling down this Jesus. It keeps us from making the lion of Judah just the mere mouse cat. It, 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 makes, it makes it so that Jesus is not some mere confession that we can so easily just kind of dribble out over our lips without any consequence to our overall life. The law can't give us life, but the law causes us to honor the full extent of God's mercy. So, I want to summarize then what I've been talking about, maybe just by a way of a visual. One thing that I learned as a math teacher is that X, Y axis. 
Know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Any other math folks? All right, all right. We got some engineers in the house. All right. You got you to know that stuff. What the law does is it demonstrates to us God's holy, uh, holy expectations, his holiness, right? The law establishes the height of his glory. And it proves the depravity of man's sin. The law shows us just how far we've fallen. And the law doesn't give us any way to kind of minimize that. Well, let's just reduce God a little bit. Oh, he's okay with my sin, no big deal. You know, the law establishes the infinite height of his holiness and the infinite depth of man's sin. It holds everything in place, if you will. And what the law does this shows us our guilt, of course. I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of his holiness. But then what it also does, shows us man's necessary, we could say, punishment. Right? It holds out man's punishment in light of the depth to which he has fallen, but it also then shows us the extent of God's mercy. The law holds everything in place. So we can't whittle Jesus down. So we can't say, well, I'm not that bad. <laughs> and so I can see, look at the bounty of his mercy that he showed me. It's the cross, if you didn't catch it. It's the cross. Christ opened up his arms on that cross to bridge the gap, so to speak to make up for all the ways in which I am fallen short of God's glory. He brought mercy to bear upon my soul. He became the dead man walking for me. When the MRI of the law said, you're dead, you're terminal, and altogether deserving of it, Jesus said, okay, I'm going to come, I'm going to live under that law. Paul will say, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son under the law. <laughs> The law had no power over Jesus. It couldn't imprison him. It couldn't condemn him. He stood as the perfect man, and he stood in your place. Why? So that he may pay your punishment to prove to you the extent of God's mercy. This is the beauty of the law. We're living in a world right now who are, everyone's concerned about their rights. It's all about my rights. And look, there, there's a place for the church to contend for justice in the world. Don't hear me wrong. But this desire from rights, for rights, is closely linked to this reality. There's no higher law than what I establish myself. It's my perspective that reigns. It's my determined justice that reigns. What the law does, it shakes us out of all that bull crap. It's stuff that is messing with the minds of our kids today. You get to determine who you want to be. You get to determine right from wrong the way you feel like it should be. And what we're doing is we're stepping outside of the imprisonment of the law, saying, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Just wait till judgment day. 
And let me just say, that's a loving thing to say. It's a loving thing to warn the world. It's a loving thing to warn the church. Don't give in to this self-justification, this, this always desire, my rights, my rights, my rights. Why don't you let the law of the Lord have its due effect upon your life? See how far you've fallen short of God's glory. And then be enraptured with the incredible extent of his mercy that he has shown you. What a mercy he has shown us. All to say, uh, as we close, are we ready to honor God's law? Are we ready to be uh, done trying to justify ourselves? Are we done trying to convince ourselves of our own self-determined goodness? Can we be done with this small Christ Christianity? This little Jesus who has to save me from just the little bit that I've determined that I'm in need of. See, when we are done minimizing Jesus, there is a bed of mercy to rest in. It's a world of security for our souls. And this is true for whether you've never trusted in Jesus before or whether you're, you're, you're in the journey of always trusting Jesus. There's a bed of mercy for your soul. When you let the law have its due say upon you, when you let the law still be like an MRI evaluating you, and maybe, maybe you get a little confused and you're like, well, didn't Jesus come and fulfill the law so really we don't need a law anymore? We're in Christ, so we're good to go. Yeah, we'll fail here and there, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> Jesus comes and says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he sets a standard not only in his example of what we are to be, but he also gives us the Sermon on the Mount that emphasizes the reality of our hearts. It's not just what we do, but what we desire. Jesus heightens the bar, so to speak. But it only once again proves the extent of his mercy to all of us who have fallen short. Do you know what this kind of mercy could lead us to as a church? Do you know what, what, what actually giving the law of Christ due sway upon our hearts could actually do for us? Folks, this is the key, so to speak, that will lead us then to invite the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. It will be that which we invite then the love of the Father into all the other crooked places of our hearts. We're, we're just going to be, oh, your mercy's so amazing. I want to lay in that bed of rest. And we'll open up our hearts to all that the Spirit wants to do, to all the ways in which the love of the Father wants to pour through our hearts, bringing healing balm to our hearts. This is where, okay, Lord, here I am in all my mess, for I want to know in greater measure your mercy. Do you know what God can do with a people, even a few people that are surrendered to that reality. It's the stuff, if I could say, of revival. I've been reading uh, a few books here and there, listening to a few sermons. Here's an excerpt from 
1907, North Korea. <laughs> what a bastion of Christianity, right? <laughs> 1907, at noon on Monday, January 14th, 1907, the missionaries met, Presbyterians, by the way, <laughs> These missionaries met intent on receiving God's blessing on the service that night. They spent time in prayer refusing to allow Satan to dampen the gathering. There's something there for us to learn. That evening, each felt as he entered the church that the room was full of God's presence. Impossible to describe. On Monday night, January 14th, a short message was shared and Mr. Lee invited people to offer prayers. So many began praying that Mr. Lee said, if you want to pray like that, well, all pray. <laughs> and the whole audience began to pray aloud, all together. The effect was indescribable, not confusion, but a vast harmony of sound and spirit, a mingling together of souls moved by an irresistible impulse of prayer. The prayer sounded to me, like the falling of many waters, an ocean of prayer beating against God's throne. One Korean man came forward um, of the Central Presbyterian Church and confessed his sin of stealing $100, which he said was like the sin of Achan, which was blocking the Lord's blessing. Following that man's confession, Mr. Lee and that man, um, after, would rise, confess his sins, break down and weep, and then throw himself to the floor and beat the floor with his fists in perfect agony of conviction. Mr. Lee continued, sometimes after a confession, the whole audience would break out in audible prayer, and the effect of that audience of hundreds of men praying together in audible prayer was something indescribable. And so the meeting would go on till about 2 a.m. in the morning with confessions and weeping and praying. On Tuesday night, January 15th, the Lord led, uh, dealt with a well-known conflict that existed between Mr. Kang and Mr. Kim. The previous night, Mr. Kang had confessed his hatred <laughs> for Mr. Kim. What, what a thing. Hey, hey how did your service go on Sunday? You know, well, you know, few confess their hate for one another. Great. <laughs> but Mr. Kim, in response to that confession, was silent, unwilling to reconcile. On this Tuesday night, however, during the service, Mr. Kim rose from his seat, came to the pulpit, and made his confession. I have been... Oh, this is so good. I have been guilty of fighting against God. An elder in the church, I have been guilty of hating not only Mr. Kang, but then he also said the, the Presbyterian missionary, Mr. Blair. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't only hate you, but I also hate him. Uh, and he's confessing that I've sinned against God. Turning to Blair, he said, can you forgive me and can you pray for me? Missionary Blair came forward and began to pray, but he can only get out two words, Father, Father, and he could say no more. Blair then, the, the missionary, described what happened next. It seemed as if the roof was lifted from the building and the Spirit of God came down from heaven in a mighty avalanche of power upon us. 
I fell at Kim's side and wept and prayed as I had never prayed before. My last glimpse of the audience is photographed indelibly on my brain. Some threw themselves full length on the floor. Hundreds stood with arms outstretched towards heaven. Every man forgot every other. That's what happens in the presence of God. Each was face to face with God. I can hear yet that fearful sound of hundreds of men pleading with God for life, for mercy. To restore order, Mr. Lee started a hymn, and Mr. Blair, the missionary, writes what transpired next. Then began a meeting, the like of which I had never seen before, nor wish to see again, unless in God's sight it is necessary. Every sin, every sin a human being can commit was publicly confessed that night. Pale and trembling with emotion, in agony of mind and body, guilty souls, standing in the white light of that judgment, saw themselves as God saw them. Their sins rose up in all their vileness, till shame and grief and self-loathing took complete possession. Pride was driven out, the face of other men forgotten. Looking up to heaven to Jesus, whom they had betrayed, they smote themselves and cried out with bitter wailing, Lord, Lord, cast us not away forever. Those attending the conference, this conference returned to their churches, carrying with them the spirit of prayer, and it impacted the churches and nation with revival. Conviction of sin, confession, repentance, and restitution became the common theme of this revival. Churches began to be planted. Revival came to the universities. Many were called and then sent out as missionaries and evangelists. Early morning prayer, 5 a.m., became the, the, the typical uh, thing for the Korean believers. People walked hundreds of miles to attend services. Persecution from the Japanese increased, but the church continued to grow. By March of 1907, 2,000 were converted. By July, 30,000 were converted. By 1911, there was 200,000 Korean believers. By the next year, 300,000. Today, the largest churches in the world are found in Seoul, Korea. It's simply to say, we can't be those who are afraid of law. Because what the law does is it teaches us just how great God's mercy is. We should clear our self-justification off the table. We should get to a point where confession of sin <laughs> is a grace upon us. Not some sense of, oh man, what's the next person going to think of me? When we come to recognize how great God's mercy is, it'll open up the floodgates for a true sanctification to work within our body. I pray for that. I need it in my own. I've been praying, Lord, you got to quicken my own spirit. You got to show me. I know there's just, it may not be huge sins, disqualifying sins, but I know I got plenty of it. <laughs> so clean me up. You got to show me. If you don't show me, how can I 
how can I taste of your mercy? If you don't show me, then I, I'm left with a smaller Jesus. <laughs> I need all of him for all of me. So, Lord, we ask that you would bless us as your people, Lord. Bless us with the grace of your law, but show us, oh, the extent of your mercy to us. Make us a people who are kind of rattled out of our, our own kind of ease and comfort and easygoing Christianity. Uh, bring hard things to bear so that we might get to know even more and more and more of your mercy. Stir us up. Stir us up, Lord. Sanctify us. We don't want to throw ourselves on the, mer uh, on, on, on the altar without you coming with the flame of your mercy. So would you do this within your church, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So we're going to take the Lord's table together. Um, and so once again, when it comes to the Lord's table, he, that's not my table. It's not my table. It's not the pastor's table. This is not just like, oh, we organize this. We do this twice a month, you know. This is the Lord's table. And it's, the Lord himself who invites us in. And what this is all about, if you're still not sure, what, what the elements are, what the Lord's table is all about, is, is very much like an anniversary. We're going back to recognizing just how great God's mercy is, that Christ would come as the dead man walking for me, that his blood would speak over me a better word than Abel's blood. So this represents, in some sense, who he is, what he's done. But even Jesus himself will say, as we come to his table and we partake of these elements, there is grace that is received. There's something afresh of, of Christ offering himself to us. He's not dying a second time or any crazy stuff like that. But he is eager by his spirit as we step out in obedience to take in these elements that the spirit is, I'm, I'm here to fill you. I'm here to do that cleansing work in your own heart. I'm here to be that grace that quickens you to show you, you aren't what you're supposed to be. Even if you're totally secure in Jesus, there's more work <laughs> that Jesus wants to do in you. You ain't what you're supposed to be. So the Holy Spirit is, is with us, if we could say it this way, with us around this table. Saying, child of God, yeah, come and take this. And as you take it by obedience, I'm showing up. I'm filling you. I'm going to bring a grace to bear in your life. So if you know Jesus, you've trusted in him, you're walking with him, 
this table's for you if you're like, ah, I don't know where I stand with Jesus. And I'd encourage you just to sit in your seat and, and reach out to him, right, who is the true meal. Reach out to him. But let's go ahead, for those of you who, uh, it's time to remember that anniversary, right? Time to celebrate again his goodness. Let's go ahead and grab the elements. You can take them to your seats and we'll take those elements together. I want to pray as we take these elements. Um, I just want to invite, almost like as we take in these elements, it's like, Lord, we want to take in, if we could say it this way, the, not the MRI of the law, but the MRI of your spirit. We just open our hearts to the ways in which you want to evaluate our hearts, to show us where we're off, we're, we're still justifying ourselves, still comparing ourselves, still running amok in our lives. Where our lives aren't exactly conformed to Jesus. We, we need a big Jesus who can handle all our failings. And so, Lord, as we take these elements, this is what we do. We invite you. We invite you now for your blood to speak that greater word over us. Lord, we invite your evaluation on our lives. We invite your quickening spirit into our lives. Uh, Lord, that you might show us, shine the black light, that UV light upon kind of our dark souls. Show us where there's muck and mess and things that only by your mercy can, can, can it get cleaned up. So Lord, we invite you now by your spirit to come. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Let's take the elements together.
don't want this to come away in any kind of like uh, condemning way whatsoever. Um, we got a great mercy, don't we? Christ became the dead man walking for you and me. The only one who could satisfy the law stepped in to save us. So I, there's not work that I have to do. I only, I only get to receive the gift, the grace. It's Christmas all over again and again and again. I wish Dan Foster was here, you know. That's his thing, <laughs> Christmas all year round. But folks, I think this is something that we as a church family really need to give our focus to. If, if we have a clear view of the gospel, we will have a clear view of holiness. The gospel will not give us excuse to just minimize Jesus, make the lion into a house cat, right? It's that the gospel will both uphold the standard and give us the grace and mercy to become something new. So I'm just going to be straight with this past week. I came away from last Sunday. I told the guys, I came away kind of wrecked by God saying, I didn't ask you to say that. I didn't ask you to do this. I didn't call you. And it, and it wasn't anything bad. I didn't cuss anybody out, do anything bad. You know, it's, it's just like stuff that he was just saying, like, it's not what I'm, I'm looking for. If I'm going, I'm mentioning it to my wife. Here I am, <laughs> confessing my faults to one another, you know, talking to the guys about it, you know, just here I am. I'm not, I don't have it together. But there is there's like a world of hope in that process to just be able to come to someone else. Hey, the Lord has been like putting his finger on some things in me that got to change. And they're not bad things. So then, I hope this is okay to say, then the other morning, Jody's coming to me saying, I just think the way we approach entertainment in our house needs to change. Like, the Lord has more for us than just endless hours of entertainment here and there, always resorting to a screen to bring peace to our house. <laughs> right? And the Lord wants in on that. Not just Bluey. Bluey doesn't get to rule our house, right? <laughs> Bluey is not the peace giver. We, we need Jesus in our house. We need a Holy Spirit house who is peace. So it's a hard road. But it's nonetheless the changes that just need to take place. And I, I, I dare would say, God is jealous, as we talked with the men on Saturday morning. God is jealous for the spirit that he's put within you. He is jealous to have all of you. Anything that's off the altar of surrender, he is eager to get at. And it's only our sense of self-justification that keeps him from having all of you. And when he doesn't get all of you, guess what? You don't get all of him. You don't get the beauty of his mercy. You don't get to know it. Yes, you're justified. Yes, you get your saved. Yes, you're in, so to speak. But we just become dull Christians. We, lo we lose the awe of his mercy. And folks, that's where I'm just saying. As a church, I think we need to process this personally in our lives. The law is a, is a wonderful thing. Because it's okay to see. 
And God's, it's okay to see how far I've fallen. Even as one who's already believed in Jesus, it's okay to recognize, man, I, I totally messed it up this past week. It's okay to see, but you gotta own it. You gotta throw it on the altar. You gotta stop self-justifying and putting it away. It's when we bring that into the clear, when we bring that to the altar, then we can taste afresh of God's mercy. And the Spirit comes in like a mighty rushing wind and gives grace to all the dead places of our hearts and souls. So my encouragement is just to be processing this as a church. You personally, you don't, you don't get everyone else's contributions to that process, right? It's got to be you and him. It's got to be you and him processing these things. Say, Lord, I, I need a fresh touch. I need the wonder of your mercy again. I'm going to switch direction just a little bit because we intended to, uh, I, I think we need to still pray for um, the school year as it's kicking up and we're going to end then with this. Uh, so Larry, why don't you come? We want to pray um, again for anyone involved in school district stuff, um, teachers, whatever, uh, and then students and parents, right? Yep. All right. Yeah, so we're going to, everyone gets to participate here, so if you don't... <laughs> If you're not being prayed for, you got to pray for somebody. And, and I want to get you guys to don't, don't be bashful about putting your hands up or putting your arms on someone's shoulder or whatever as we go through this, um, go through this prayer. All right? So the first thing we want to pray for is, and I'm going to ask someone to ask you to stand up. I want to pray for the teachers. Now, if you're MGK teacher, if you're teaching Bible study, if you're teaching um, anything, whatever you're teaching, um, Stand up, and we're going to pray for you guys this morning. Uh, if you're teaching upstairs, even the nursery school kids, that's teaching. So if you stand, stand up if you're a teacher, and we want to pray for you this morning. So um, uh, I might say is, uh, is um, just a prelude to this. I got to deliver the uh, school supplies this week to Lawton School, and it's always awesome to go in there, and the teachers are always – don't get to talk to a teacher because the teachers are always busy – um, getting stuff done and all. I asked for the principal. Her name's Ernetta Imes, and I suggest you pray for her because she's, she's really trying hard to do a job with these kids down there, and uh, she was busy. The lady was the lady behind the glass. I got to see her. We waved back and forth. But the, the one person I got to talk to was the security guard. He was there, and I told him where we're from. I always put a note in with this stuff. It was from Mercy Gate Church. I explained to him where we were and all. I thanked him for what he did, because um, I think we should thank people who, who serve us, no matter what you are, what you do. If you're serving us, I think we should thank you. Um, so we thank them. So first, we'd like to thank the, the teachers. Lord, I, Lord, I just raise up to you anyone who is teaching um, this morning, if they're, if they're teaching um, Bible study, if they're teaching children, if they're, if they're homeschooling their kids, Lord, I want to just raise them up this morning. and. And thank you for the blessings of the teachers, Lord. Lord, in this day and age, um, you know, there's, it seems like every time we turn around, there's new knowledge that comes out. Some good, some not so good, but new knowledge that comes out, Lord. And uh, new discoveries, new things, Lord, you're infinite in knowledge and wonderful in, in that, Lord. And it just comes out more and more. So I, I thank you for teachers who are diligent to first study it themselves and then, 
and then convey it to children. I thank you for teachers who were, um, who set themselves as role models for kids, models of, um, of sometimes even of righteousness and models of, um, of what, what the children can aspire to be. That, uh, I thank you for that, Lord. I ask you to give teachers patience and uh, kindness and patience, but also, Lord, I, I ask you to give them the, the strength to be able to get through the day. Sometimes um, it is hard. It is hard teaching kids. We know that from just kind of an hour here and there, but for just, you know, six hours a day, it's just hard. So, Lord, I pray for them. I ask you to be with them and um, guide them. Give them the heart and mind to be able to, to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're not done. Next is parents. If you're a parent for children, um, you got kids in school, I ask you to stand up because we want to we wanna pray for you guys also because you you have a um, you have an important role. You have an important role, and don't be bashful, and don't be afraid to put your hand up. Don't be afraid to put your hand on someone's shoulder, all right? I want you to stand up um, if you're a parent because um, you are so important in your children's life. Um, parents are, are kind of the last bastion of knowledge that comes into their children's lives. Sometimes you are a, you're a filter of knowledge, especially nowadays. You're a filter because things that come through are always the right thing. So you're a filter of the knowledge that comes through when your ch children come home and tell you what they learned. Sometimes it's time to say, hey, you know what, let's, let's sit down and talk about it. Because sometimes there's things that maybe aren't what, what is Christ-centered and what is, um, what is good that they've learned. They learn things on the street. Sometimes they learn the wrong things. So I want to pray for parents this morning, Lord. Would you give them strength? Lord, you give them confidence. You give them faith, Lord. I want to pray that you would um, give them strength, Lord. Give them strength to be able to um, even, even give them knowledge to um, what is right and what is wrong. Give them strength to be able to correct what is wrong and bring what is right into their, their children's lives. There's so many things are happening today and so many ways of communications Parents need to filter it, so Lord, help them to filter it, help them to, uh, to do it in a godly manner and to, to bless their children. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right now it's time for the students. One more time. Students. Uh, so if you're a student, stand up. Um, you can stand up any kind of a student. Even if you're a student in the Bible study, you can stand up if you want. All right? Don't be bashful. And again, I ask you, you know, put your... Don't be afraid to put your hands out and pray for them now, right? Put your hands out and pray for the kids. Um, so, Lord, I raise up to you. I raise up to you the next, the next generation of, of, of your people, Lord, that are coming up. Lord, I pray for, um, for the knowledge they receive. I pray for the transmission of that knowledge, Lord, that it's done in a godly manner. Lord, I pray for them also, Lord. Um, I pray against the evil one who would put things in the way of knowledge that is true and is right. I pray for the evil one who will bring um, popular culture and political correctness to bear in what knowledge is. So, Lord, I ask that you would um, be with them, Lord. 
Help them to ask questions and help them to learn. Lord, I pray that they would come first to church and use that as, as really what they learn through your scripture is the, is the filter, so to speak, for what, what they learn. And it's godly wisdom they learn and knowledge, Lord. I pray that you train them up in, in ways that it will enlighten, enlighten the, the lives of other people. Lord, I even pray for, um, for the children to come and have come here on Sundays that they would shed that light that they learned, that light of Jesus into, into their other students as they make friends through the school year. Might they, um, might they somehow tell somebody about Jesus, whether it's by befriending somebody who's uh, maybe being picked on or, or be, able to be able to be bold enough to, um, to say that um, I have a Lord and a Savior and his name is Jesus and he loves me more than anything in the world. So Lord, I thank you and I praise you for all the students today. And it's in Jesus' name and the people said, amen. All right, so Karen, uh, Jupiter, are you good with this? I should check with Dad first. She just wanted to share a few things with the church. Just a word of encouragement. Is that okay? Yeah, you can come up. Come on. Yeah. All right. Um, I just wanted to say thank you to this church. I really love this church. I mean, ever since I started coming here, I've really learned a lot of things, and I just want to say thank you. I'm saying this speech because I don't know if students from last day here. I don't know. But I just wanted to say thank you. I love this church. I love everyone in this church, and you guys are like family to me. So, uh, Jupiter, when when is Karen going to be heading back to? The trip comes. Uh, I will be traveling to Africa. Okay. All right. All right. So we're gonna pray for you, Karen. Sound good? All right, ladies. Father, we just present Karen to you, and we thank you for her spirit, and we thank you for her word of encouragement this morning. We thank you that your word says that the steps of a righteous man or woman of God are ordered of the Lord. She is your girl, and her steps are ordered by you. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you journey with her and that wisdom follow those who are surrounding and covering her. And the mightiest covering, which is you and the power of your resurrection, may it be with her. May it protect her from the crown of her head to the soles of her feet, Father God. And may the light of her path be shown directly and clearly, God. Because we know that uh, her present future is bright and shiny and wonderful. 
Lord, so we just ask that you care for her, that you love her, that you surround her with angels, angelic hosts all around her, Lord God, that nothing by any means shall ever harm her, Father. And we thank you that the blood of Jesus is with her in and through her, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing gift of Karen. Um, you know, she is a beacon, Lord, of hope for all of our kids here, Father God. So we ask and we pray, Lord Jesus, that as she sets off in her journey, Lord, that you cover her with your precious blood, that you protect her in every step that she takes, that you walk with her so she knows that she is never alone and that she is strengthened by your goodness and your mercy in everything that she does, Lord Jesus. We pray for her, we pray for her family, and we pray for peaceful and wonderful journeys. Amen. So, Lord, we, we pray. Um, I just, uh, Lord, just kind of interrupt and say, uh, God's got a grace upon your life that the enemy is trying to steal away. He's given you a unique personality, a unique gift set, but the enemy is also trying to get at you. And I just, I just pray the blood of Jesus over you, Karen. And I pray that the Lord's purposes would be fulfilled in you. Um, that the enemy's tactics would fall short. That all the ways that he looks to um, overwhelm and undercut and resolve God's intentions for you, uh, Lord, let them fall short now in Jesus' mighty name. We pray the blood of Jesus over you. I believe the Lord would call you to walk in holiness. There's a, there's a light path and a dark path, and I just hear him calling you down. Come down the light path. It's almost the uh, Proverbs 9. There, there's one path that leads to um, the place of death, Sheol, but there's another place that leads to life and life in abundance. And so the Lord would call you to walk in wisdom, call you to walk by the way of light. All your decisions, let them be made with God in view. Holy Spirit to lead you in the way that you should go in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 All right, for uh, James is going to actually just play uh, maybe another song or two. I don't know. Um, if, but for the rest of us, you know, we got to let the kids upstairs roll. Uh, and if, but if the Lord's kind of working in your heart, don't just be quick to move. Maybe there's things you got to slow down and just contemplate before Him. Uh, feel free to kind of stay in a posture of worship as well. In other words, we're done, but we're not done. I don't know, right? Uh, God, God's not done uh, when it comes down to it. And so sometimes it's just good to huh, kind of have a little time to take breath. Uh, but like grab your kids or you got to run. That's, that's totally cool as well. So God bless you. Keep you. Make his face to shine upon you this week in Jesus' name.